On this week's episode of Life and Lessons, I reflect on my visit to Auschwitz. Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 40 of Life and Lessons. I'm Sean Spooner, and if you're new here, here's what you need to know. For 52 weeks between the ages of 24 and 25, I'm going to be recording and releasing a weekly podcast to see just how much my life can change in a year. This is the story of growing a business, of growing as a person, and it's a completely honest view into my life as I take on some fairly unusual things. And this episode right here is all about week number 40 in that journey. And you know what? For the first time in a while, uh, it feels like it has actually been an eventful week since we last spoke. It feels like it has been a long time since I've said that. Uh, But this has been an interesting week. You'll remember that this time last week when we last spoke, I would have just been setting off for Poland. I went to Poland with Chloe from Friday until Monday Uh, And lots happened there. It was a good little trip. Now, I'll be honest, um, Poland took me by surprise. I feel like I say this every time I visit another country, but I always have a kind of preconception about what a place is going to be like when I get there. And then, almost entirely, without fail, I am pleasantly surprised. I say almost entirely because uh, I generally think I won't enjoy a country. I get there and then I do. But this, the opposite was true with um, Paris this time last year when I thought, ah, oh, Paris is nice, everyone likes Paris. And I got there and it was just difficult to get around. Everybody was moody, the weather was shit, uh, it was expensive. So didn't like Paris. But other than that, everywhere, including Poland, has pleasantly surprised me. Uh, so we went to Krakow, which until last Friday, if you asked me to point out on a map, I would not be able to show you where it was. I probably wouldn't even be able to tell you what country it was in, which is probably a strong case for listening more in GCSE geography. Um, But yeah, didn't really know where Krakow was. But when we arrived, I was amazed, to be honest. I know that these are all stereotypical things, but like the people were super friendly. uh, And as is always the case, whenever I visit another country, the people of that country put me to shame because they can speak absolutely perfect English and in contrast you know this time around I couldn't even say hello in Polish so like that always blows me away and I mean not just in the tourist areas I mean everywhere it seems that England is one of the few countries where the majority of people seem to only speak English Uh, so every time I go abroad actually it makes me want to learn another language Um, and I was actually reading somebody's a bit of a tangent here I was actually reading somebody's Uh, out of office reply that I got a few weeks ago uh, a guy from a French company and I was reading his out of office reply which obviously was French and I was like shit actually between what I learned in school all those years back and some of these words that seem similar to English words I could just about work out what his out of office was saying and that really um, gave me the the encouragement to to want to learn French again so maybe I'll do that in the near future who knows Um, but yeah everybody spoke English which puts me to shame the people were super friendly Uh, the Airbnb we stayed in was super nice which was a relief because 
I don't know about you, but I always have this underlying mistrust of Airbnb, sorry, of Airbnb listings and assume that they're going to be nowhere near as nice as they are in person. But this time around, it was really, really nice. Crazy good value for money. Uh, Really good location. It was just great. I also got to try Polish McDonald's because, as you might know, literally my only hobby in life is trying the McDonald's in other countries. And for what it's worth, Polish McDonald's is way better than the UK. I I couldn't tell you the name of the burger I ordered, but it was basically like a um, like a signature burger. I think that's what they're called in the UK. Something like that with rather than fries I had, I think they were called home-like potatoes, which are basically just like rough cut fried wedges. Fucking wicked. Uh, so yeah, Polish McDonald's is one to add to the bucket list. Uh, and also had a chance to ride lime scooters again. I tweeted in the middle of lockdown that when all of this is over, the first thing I'm doing is getting on a flight to somewhere in mainland Europe to risk my life on lime scooters. And that is exactly what I did. There is nothing more fun than whizzing around on a little electric scooter at like 25 kilometers an hour, getting in the way of the locals who are pissed off. Great times. Uh, So that was good. And then the food, the price of food in Krakow, I am honestly still not over it. Like everything is so cheap and so good. Like the quality of food and the level of service you you get for what is like a seven pound meal is just mad. And also everywhere, everywhere in Poland sells 0% alcohol beer and like a lot of it, which for obvious reasons is great news for me. Uh, And for the first couple of days, I couldn't work out the reason for it. Until I remember that I read on the GovUK website uh, on their Poland page where it just gives you general information about travelling to the country. Uh, Poland's drink drive limit is way lower than that of the UK's. And so, of course, it makes sense to offer a shitload of 0% alcohol beers because you can't even have half a pint in Poland without risking being over the limit. So, uh, yeah, that I, I thought that was both interesting from a cultural point of view and also just very useful for me because, uh, you know, I love a 0% beer. Um, and then on the Sunday, having spent the Saturday just kind of exploring Krakow and eating cheap food, we visited Auschwitz. And this is kind of what I want to reflect on today because... Don't get me wrong, other things have happened this week, um, but it's. I think it's difficult to try and talk about something so significant and profound in the same episode as uh, less significant and less profound things. So really all I want to do today is just think out loud about some of the things that um, that occurred to me as a result of visiting Auschwitz. So... I'll begin here, right? I'll be completely honest with you. Auschwitz is not somewhere I wanted to visit. Let me explain. So, ever since we booked our trip to Poland a couple of months ago, I felt kind of worried about visiting Auschwitz. It's not explicitly that I didn't want to go. Like, that's not the right way of putting it. It was more that every time I thought about it, I just felt uncomfortable. Like, I knew, of course, that it wasn't going to be a nice day out. And I felt like I didn't know even nearly enough about the site or what happened there. Or even the wider historical context and what led to 
you know, Auschwitz existing in the first place. I just felt like I didn't know enough. But all of those reasons and more is exactly why I knew I had to go, why it was important to go. And so we did. Now, I think I'm going to struggle to do the place justice in explaining my experience here. Uh, So bear with me, but I'll do my best, right? So Auschwitz is about an hour away from Krakow by coach. And when you arrive, it's weird because you arrive in what I think it's fair to call like a fairly nondescript car park. There's like a few cars, a couple of benches and a few coaches parked around. And I'm not sure about anybody else who has visited, but before you really walk into the main area where the tour begins, at least in my experience, I think it's easy to forget where you are like an hour earlier you were in a major city you've kind of sat on a coach and now you're in this fairly nondescript car park Uh, now you know it's a site that we all know so well and that we've heard so much about and one that bears so much historical significance and yet at least in my experience it takes a little while for you to actually I guess comprehend where you are it takes a while for it to hit you that you're really in Auschwitz. So anyway, you walk through a couple of layers of security um, and also at the moment, like a few COVID measures just to keep everybody safe. And then before you know it, you've, you've exited through the building that you've just walked through and you're back outside again in what, to the immediate eye, feels like a fairly normal kind of courtyard. It's only when you start to look around that you notice clues to remind you about where you actually are. Things like danger signs on little wooden posts, and watchtowers in the distance, and bars on some of the windows, and barbed wire, and then across to the right, if you look over, the infamous work sets you free gate. And so, just after I clocked that, our tour guide introduced herself. Now, I'll be honest, I can't remember her name, but she was incredible like she was so so good as we went about the tour she managed to make everything feel so real and managed to engage our entire group and walk us through some I think fairly incomprehensible things like they're really hard to at least again I'm gonna keep saying this in this episode because I you know these are just my experiences but the things that you see and hear about um on this tour though you're very aware they are real and they happened just because of the the inhumane nature of them and the scale at which they occurred it really does take uh, a good tour guide like the one that we had to make it feel real now i'm not going to go into a step-by-step detail of everything that the guide shared with us because i think that everybody should see and hear it for themselves and i think that you if you haven't already Uh, Now that I've gone, I can say this should go and see it in person one day if you haven't. But what I am going to do is just give a couple of reflections on, um, you know, things that occurred to me as we walked around on Sunday. So the first thing kind of goes back to what I was just saying. Uh, And again, I really can't speak for anybody else here, but it took me a good 20 minutes to actually fathom the idea that we were in the real Auschwitz. And that probably sounds silly, but given the historical context of what happened there, it it just, it took me a minute to kind of be grounded and realise that 
all of the stories that we've heard um, happened here where we were stood. And this sounds weird, but it had been raining that day and underneath the kind of stone and mud roads that uh, grid across the camp, uh, we were walking outside and I kept looking down at the stones that were kind of wedged deep into this mud. And I couldn't help but think, you know, have those stones been there the whole time? Are we walking on literally the exact same stones that some of those 1.3 million victims who were in Auschwitz uh, had walked over? And like, that is how inside of my own head I was at the beginning. Just, again, trying to, to really ground myself to the idea that we were here. But then that lack of things feeling real ended really quite quickly as soon as we were shown shown some of the exhibits um you know we were we were walked into one particular building and immediately it was hard to feel anything other than you know awe and be struck by the the reality of our surroundings so we walked into one of the buildings in Auschwitz, which i believe is block four and inside that building is just some of what they call, I believe, the material evidence of what happened there. So these are um, these are blocks where inmates of Auschwitz, of course, once lived. And now they have been turned into, uh, I guess, rooms with exhibitions. I think it's, it's a museum, right? So there are exhibitions to just show some of what happened there and so we're talking in this building there was like an enormous pile of shoes which were the the very shoes worn by victims uh, as they arrived in Auschwitz there were suitcases with names handwritten on them again written by the people who arrived through those gates Uh, in one of the rooms we were shown empty tins of gas that were used in the gas chambers like the the real tins that were used all those years ago to commit what happened there the the vast amounts of hair cut from the victims um like in that building it was impossible to ignore what appeared to be the scale of things and when i say appeared to be i mean because there were a lot of shoes in the shoe exhibition right there were a lot of uh, suitcases in the pile of suitcases But as our tour guide reminded us at every turn, no matter how many suitcases or how many pairs of glasses or how many shoes we could see in that building, it was a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the true scale of what really happened there. And when you see a pile of a few hundred pairs of shoes which were worn by victims in the moments before their death... It's a weird feeling, but when you then realise that, you know, there are a few hundred pairs of shoes there and at least 1.1 million people died across the two sites at Auschwitz, it really is just, I'm going to keep going back to this word, but it is difficult to comprehend. And that's kind of, at least in my experience, the overarching feeling that a visit to Auschwitz gives you. One of overwhelm. Uh, Now, this is something that I learned on the day, that despite, you know, as we all do, learning about the Holocaust in school, I'll be honest with you, I was fairly unaware of. So, our guide was keen to stress 
the idea that nobody was, in her words, selected to live at Auschwitz. And what she meant by this is that we've all seen the photos of the process that occurred along the train tracks on arrival to Auschwitz too, where people were put into one of two groups. Now, of course, one group was taken to immediately be killed, and the other group were selected to work. Now, again, this may be a hole in what I was taught in school, but I assumed until that tour on Sunday that being selected to work meant being selected to live, but our guide was keen to stress that this isn't actually the case. It was either, in her words, deaf or slow deaf, and I didn't quite understand what she meant by that until we arrived into another block on the site. Now, along the long corridor of this building were framed photos of, again, just a tiny percentage of those who were selected to work. Now, the guide explained upon selection, these people were registered and they had, I guess, prison style headshots taken. And so the length of this very long corridor is covered on both sides, uh, almost floor to ceiling with framed pictures of just some of those headshots. And this struck me for two reasons. Firstly, it made it feel very real and very human to be able to look into the eyes of individuals who were at Auschwitz. And by that, I mean, again, to go back to what I personally learned in school, it feels like everything about Auschwitz that I learned was taught from a distance. And by that, I mean, there are like far away photos of uh, the trains arriving and group shots of hundreds of people in one picture and then we're of course taught about the massive scale of the holocaust but I think amongst all of that it's easy to forget that Auschwitz didn't have 1.3 million inmates it had 1.3 million people 1.3 million individuals and looking through the proxy of photos into the eyes of some of those individuals just made it feel incredibly real because it, it sounds mad but it's it's you know you're ugh, looking at the age of some of the people it's almost like looking at well it is looking at people my age in a in a situation that is just beyond comprehension um and yeah, that, so that, that's the first thing that struck me about that corridor. Uh, but then to go back to what I was saying about how the guide explained that nobody was selected to live, but just die slowly. Um, this is the second thing that struck me about these photos. So under each photo was the date that that particular individual arrived at Auschwitz and then the date of their death. Now, like I say, this isn't this is something I didn't know, but those who were selected to work lived for weeks, or in a very few cases in that corridor, a few months. And looking at those dates between the date of arrival and the date of death of these people who were selected to quote unquote live, I understood what our guide meant that nobody was selected to live, that those in Auschwitz were either killed on arrival or they were killed slowly whilst they lived there through the various means of suffering that they had to endure. And then my last reaction 
to the tour is probably the the hardest to describe and it's a feeling that I had both during the tour and for hours afterwards if I'm honest and it's one that I don't quite know how to describe in words but the closest word that I do know is silence. Now Auschwitz is a naturally quiet place through both respect and through the vast size of both of the camps there's not a lot of noise around and so everything on the outside is as good as silent but as we got towards the end of the tour having seen what we had seen having heard the stories that we had been told and having tried to take in and comprehend uh, what had happened inside of the very gates that we were stood within it wasn't just the outside that was silent. Now, again, this is this is hard to describe. Like, I don't quite know how to put words to this, but my mind was silent as well. Not only did I not have anything to say out loud, but I didn't even have anything to say as like an internal monologue. The sight is silent. Everybody on our tour was silent, but so too was my mind. I think it's the only time in my life when I just haven't had the words or haven't felt the need to say anything. Like, yes, I had a reaction, but that reaction didn't, doesn't translate into words. It isn't, again, in my experience, something that you can really actually put words to. It's more of a feeling. Because I don't think there are words. But that feeling... The feeling that I, and that I imagine everybody else felt, is one that I think that everybody needs to experience. Partly because what happened at Auschwitz and other concentration camps during the Holocaust, but also partly because of what our tour guide said at the very end of the tour. So there we were, stood inside the vast site of Auschwitz II with the countless rows of buildings, trying to collect our thoughts. And, of course... In our minds, this, where we were stood, was the Holocaust. But it was at that moment that our guide said something really quite powerful. She said something along these lines, right, I'm paraphrasing, but she said that what happened on this site didn't start here. She said Auschwitz didn't just appear. It was the result of hate. Hate that first started hundreds of miles away from places like Auschwitz. And hate that managed to infiltrate many layers of society before sites like Auschwitz occurred, appeared. And then she reminded our group of something important. She said that hate still exists today. The things that created such atrocities are still around. They're in different forms, yes, They have more opposition, yes, but hate still exists. And it was for that reason at the very end of the tour that she said that everybody needs to visit Auschwitz. To see where hate leads, to see what it causes, and to understand why it must be challenged at every turn. And I think she's right. I think that if ever you get the chance to visit Auschwitz, you really ought to. Like, I I don't know what else to say. Um, It's just... It's somewhere where everybody needs to go. And I think if you've already been, 
you will understand why if you haven't yet been uh, as soon as that tour ends I think you'll understand exactly what I'm trying to get at and that's all I have today um as always thank you very much for listening uh, you, you can probably tell I've got quite a, I wouldn't say a sore throat, <laughs> mainly cause COVID, but actually I just, it's not actually sore. I've just got a very worn out throat over the last few days. Not sure why. Could be to do with sleeping in a Airbnb with aircon for a few days and then recirculated air on airplanes and so on. But my voice is very croaky these last few days. So apologies if that has been uh, obvious during this episode. But like I say, thank you very much for listening. I uh, hope you have a good week. And I'll see you back here this time next week for episode number 41 of Life and Lessons. See you then. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 